Hello everyone, Sage here, and welcome back to another episode of Sage Stories, the segment where I sit here and tell you what I'm thinking. Just anything important on my mind that feels relevant to talk about, or things that I want to get off my mind and onto your guys's. I'm sitting down here in my recording studio slash now bedroom. Yep, I live in my recording studio now. Um, I'm just sitting down here sipping a nice sparkling LaCroix and pondering life. All that good stuff. Um, oh, I'm getting ready to go back to school tomorrow. That's, that's going to be a freaking trip. We start nice and early Monday morning. What's it, like August 24th, I think? Which is way earlier than we normally would, but, you know, COVID, it changes things, makes things not what they normally would be. So that's all I really need to go into about that. So today I wanted to revisit a topic that we actually discussed a couple episodes ago, um, which was free will. Uh, I believe that episode was like four ago or so. Um, and I wanted to revisit this topic for two main reasons. The first being uh, I thought about it a lot afterwards and kind of wanted to clarify some of my points. And the other just being it's something that's on my mind a lot of the time. It's something that I think about both because we did that episode and just it's a fascinating concept to me. Now I could bore you with a, a deep dive into some of the leading philosophers who talk about free will. I mean I know Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, plenty of other people have a heck ton to say about it. Um, but today for the most part I'm just going to clarify some of the stuff that we were talking about in our last podcast um, and also just talk about what I think of when I consider free will. Um, and I'll go pretty in-depth into it, but it's all going to be from my own mind, not really from uh, a lot of research that I've done on it. I did do research in high school, but don't exactly remember who said what. So, yeah, here goes. So just to recap a little bit, free will is basically the ability to break free from something like destiny or fate that predetermines your behaviors, your outcomes, and your actions and be able to act according to your own desires, to independently decide your own future through self-determination. So in our podcast last time, we covered the two main generalized schools of thought regarding this issue. One contending that free will doesn't exist, um, that focuses on destiny and fate, either through a religious means or just scientific means, basically, um, looking at how there's always a cause and effect to every scientific relationship between, you know, just down to the smallest particle. And so thus, chance doesn't really exist, since every outcome can be scientifically predicted and explained. Now I'm going to mostly stay away from this debate, because it's not really that relevant to our experiences as humans. And instead I'm going to focus on the much more personal aspect of how it plays out in our society, and how free will shapes our perceptions of ourselves. Now the very first thing I realized after we recorded that episode was how exclusively we focused on humans in our conversation. And so the thing that got me thinking about free will all over again was animals. So the question is, do animals have free will as well? Is that something that transcends just humans and that all life forms share? As much as I want to say yes, I don't think that answer makes any sense at all. In fact, it seems to me that one of the reasons we love going out in the field and observing animals and their behavior so much is because they are extremely predictable. Um, 
their patterns of behavior basically show us that they don't seem to have free will for the most part. Of course, it depends on the animal, but for the most part, the study of animals is focused on studying their instincts, not studying their decisions as conscious, intelligent beings. It's no wonder then that we get so excited when, when we see an animal expressing some human-like characteristics, such as chimpanzees making their own little wooden or stone tools, or even at least appearing to try to read a book or, you know, use a camera right on a skateboard. Um, and equally so, it's no wonder that the animals we feel closest to and we feel the most affection for, towards are the ones that seem to express some towards of affection back towards us. Um, you know, dogs and cats, the domesticated animals, but not just them. There are other animals that people seem to very, be very interested in, such as dolphins, um, because dolphins are very intelligent, and not only that, they're interested in people. They often don't appear to be staying within any rigid, cyclical uh, patterns of behavior. You know, they'll, they'll come up and say hi to you. It almost seems like they're talking to you in many, many videos. And other animals sometimes do this as well, and people get very excited. In this sense, free will appears to be a concept extremely centered around humans, uh, possibly even exclusively owned by humans. As much as I love my dog and consider her to be a part of the family, when she pees on the floor and eats a roll of toilet paper, I would never punish her the same way I would punish a person. I mean, you can consider a dog to be very close to human, but at the same point, you always return to that stage of saying, ah, well, they didn't know any better. It's not their fault, it's just their own instincts. In treating our pets much like we would treat an innocent, responsibility-less infant or young child, we have to broach the question, what is it that differentiates humans, specifically adult humans, from animals? I think that many would say it's not intelligence that differentiates us, at least not fully, but rather a, our deep understanding of how our actions have consequences on other people. And not only an understanding of how that will impact us, but how it feels to that person. It could be said that consciousness is much more than just an understanding of how the world works and how best to manipulate it, because there are many things that know how to do that. You know, crows figuring out uh, complex traps uh, to get food, and mice scurrying through a maze. The very ethereal distinguishing factor is this awareness of our place in the world, and thus consequences on others, which brings with it um, the acknowledgement of individual responsibility for one's actions. Um, because those actions come from a place of free will and not instinct, which could be seen as a form of fate or destiny. This is the essential part of our justice system. It's why you don't see a hungry wolf standing trial like you would a murderer, and also why people are allowed to get off on the insanity defense. Essentially, we see an individual act as far less important than the individual who committed that act's um, understanding and awareness of what they were doing and how it could harm or help another person. This is thus where the concepts of good and evil arise, for it could be said that evil cannot exist where there is not consciousness. I personally believe that evil is the result 
of our awareness of how we can harm another person and our understanding of what that harm feels like and yet our decision to take that action nonetheless. This is much in line with the quote that evil cannot exist in nature no matter the horrors that go on there because the atrocious acts we could try to call evil generally are not the acts of intelligent beings but rather the instinctual acts of a hungry or territorial beast. This is why while a crocodile or mountain lion who eats a kid might be hunted to death by the townsfolk or whoever afterwards, it very rarely comes from a place of revenge, at least outwardly, and much more from a place of community safety. As much as our criminal justice system wants to say the same thing about the prisoners it locks up, um, specifically that it comes from a place of community safety, the sentences and punishments that prisoners often receive expose how much we base it more on personal punishment, on revenge, on the fact that because of the acts these certain people have committed, it defines their character as evil, rather than just exposing a pattern of danger or unlawfulness that could theoretically be remedied. Of course, free will gives us an advantage over animals as well, for the concept of reformation within prisons and justice systems would not exist were humans considered, considered to be doomed to these instinctual patterns. We can thus see the punishment-oriented programs administered within these institutions as a personal and revenge-fueled failure to recognize uh, free will and human consciousness and awareness rather than a failure of the institution's ideals themselves. All of this is super interesting because it contradicts the common narrative that dehumanization is the best method to treating people terribly. In fact, I would argue that while dehumanization is a tactic most useful in the oppression of a large group of people that have obviously done nothing wrong, such as with slavery or you know the Jews in Nazi Germany, humanization is a much better tactic in justifying the maltreatment of an individual who has done wrong, because it forces individual responsibility on that person for their actions and thus acts as the impetus for punishment, uh, revenge, and any other shitty treatment. This is why prosecutors emphasize personal choice and humanness in a prosecution, um, and also why I would find it much easier to harm a person who killed my dog rather than, you know, a random raccoon or or coyote that got him. We as humans are acutely aware to personal agency and consciousness and look for it wherever we can, whether it is to make friends with someone, um, to form positive social ties, or to find a reason to hate them and despise them and want revenge upon them. In this sense, the justice system acts as a sort of orderly way to enact karma upon the population specifically in the negative sense though, um, punishing those who do negatively and rewarding those who do not do negatively by giving them no punishment at all. Before we get too deep into the justice system though, I want to bring it back to animals because we still haven't fully answered the initial question I asked. The main problem with assuming that animals lack free will because they are 100% stuck in their patterns of instinctual behavior is that Animals are not 100% stuck in these patterns. 
As I said previously, it's animals like dogs and cats, domesticated animals that show compassion, that seem to show empathy for humans, that show these human traits. These are the ones that we love the most because they don't 100% seem to be the traditional animals with no free will of their own, with no thought, with no feeling, with no care. I'm not even sure if this caricature of an animal exists for even down to the small ant, the beetle, little things that we can't really relate with because they can't give us eye contact, they're tiny, we don't understand them. Even there, you see signs of compassion, at least amongst the species. So if consciousness, empathy, and this free will appear to be on a spectrum, what really is the fundamental difference between humans and animals? Aren't the seemingly arbitrary definitions and boundaries of age that we use to assign responsibility to children and young adults a perfect encapsulation of how random and meaningless these human definitions appear? Well, of course, these definitions are partially arbitrary since they're created by humans, but I don't think that's the full story. To understand the full story, we have to return to the concept of karma, which we discussed extensively in our previous podcast. Last time we concluded that the realistic applications of karma exist and are defined by human contact, human social contact specifically. Essentially, discarding the idea that some spiritual force or higher being is monitoring the virtues and negative aspects of your life in a very Santa Claus, I know if you've been good or bad sort of way, we decided that karma is a relatively realistic force because People like when good things are done to them, and if you do good for somebody else, they will do good to you. Just as if you hurt someone, it is more likely for them to hurt you. This is where I put my editor cap on to revise and expand upon my thinking. I still think humans totally monitor their behaviors in order to sustain and improve social ties with other people around them, just because it's, you know, adaptive and helpful. But this is the aspect of self-determination and behavior that is not exclusive to humans by any stretch of the imagination. We see animals enacting these kinds of regulatory power dynamics all of the time, which is why the vast majority of creatures live communally and not on their own. This social aspect of karma also doesn't explain why humans don't act like shit when they're on their own. Of course, some people are more likely to forsake their morals when they know there aren't going to be negative social consequences, but that doesn't mean that people are just rampaging instinctual idiots whenever they're on their own and not around their friends. This is because almost every single person on the planet, even sociopaths who lack a conscience in terms of empathizing with others, all have an internal image of themselves as a good and respectable person that must be maintained in order for them to feel good about themselves. This is why, when depression manifests itself as a person thinking that other people don't like them, as it so often does, this is often in conflict with reality, and in fact, it is the person who doesn't like themselves, or at least the representation of themselves in their mind is very, very negative, which is causing them all of these uncomfortable and negative, sad feelings. I would posit that this internal self-esteem is just as, if not more important in determining a person's contentment and happiness than the way that other people around them actually feel about them and treat them. It's also why pride in oneself is so important and necessary in moderation, and why the road to narcissism is so slippery and easy to fall into for many people. Our social relationships with others also play directly into our own self-esteems, which is why when somebody gets mad at you, you might start feeling a little bit bad about yourself. 
In this way, our internal perceptions of our own worth regulate our behaviors and actions an incredible amount, just as much as the ways that other people see us and treat us, and how well we function in a society. I would even go so far as to say that perhaps the gods and angels and great beings that we imagine looking down on us and judging our actions are actually within ourselves. This is what I see as the defining feature of free will as we see it among humankind. Humans are by far the most introspective and self-conscious beings that we know to exist, and it is for that reason that we possess a greater degree of free will than any other being on the planet. While a dog's choice to eat a fresh plate of cookies might be determined by whether or not its owners are watching, as soon as their eyes go away, all of their internal senses of regulation disappear. Instinct takes over. They do not have the same sense of self-worth that we have, and thus cannot regulate and choose their own decisions based upon it. Some have argued that free will can only exist within an organized system of values, because good and evil must exist in order for a person to choose good over evil. This is the founding concept for pretty much every single religion on the planet, as we talked about in our last podcast, and so I think this theory has a heck ton of merit. However, I still don't think it tells the full story, because animals very clearly have unspoken value systems of their own, within their own little groups and subcultures and species. Social animals need to work well together in order to survive, and so they have internal, instinctual guiding mechanisms that guide their behavior so they are actually able to do that. The difference is, as far as we can tell, these internal guiding mechanisms are exclusively guiding them how to work well with others, and has nothing to do with their personal perceptions of themselves. I mean, if you're a simple animal, what does self-esteem really do for you in an adaptive sense? Humans are not simple. Humans are strange and complicated and bizarre and social, yet also very personal beings. And it is this great self-consciousness, this creator of an insecurity and self-doubt, that I believe allows us to enact our free will upon the world. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you thought about something you hadn't thought about before. Tune in later this week as we bring on a new guest to the podcast. Have a good week.